This episode is brought to you by IG. IG Smart Portfolios are a range of multi-asset strategies based on asset allocation insights from BlackRock. The portfolios are transparently designed around your risk profile and investment objectives. If you're a UK investor, you can open an account from the link in our description and get 50% off management fees for the next 12 months. That's just 0.25% in fees. Please be aware investing puts your capital at risk. Terms and conditions in the description below. Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. The so-called Magnificent Seven stocks have reigned supreme this year, accounting for almost all of the S&P 500's returns. But what if these titans of tech begin to stumble? I want to know the challenges they face and whether their dominance can continue. And in today's dumb question of the week, how long do companies last? Okay, let's get into it. So the Magnificent Seven, as they're called. Now, we should probably start by saying what they are. So there's Alphabet, which was formerly Google, Amazon, Apple, Meta, which was formerly Facebook, Microsoft, NVIDIA, and Tesla. There's your seven. And some people have an eighth, which is Netflix. But whichever way you look at it, these stocks have been incredibly dominant, especially this year. And as we said in the intro, Without them, the S&P 500 would have gone nowhere this year. So, Roman, what is so special about this handful of companies? Well, the most obvious thing is that they're all based in the US. And I think that's not a coincidence. You know, they, they're very good at growing tech companies and making them globally dominant. That's something which they've been incredibly successful at. And that's probably something to do with the culture in America, the capital's there to do it, and the kind of encouraging. VC ecosystem. So I think that combination of factors has essentially allowed the US to scale these companies out of all proportion to companies in the rest of the world. But America has lots of tech companies that start up and disappear. What is it about these seven? Is it just that they were the ones that were successful? Well, these are the ones that managed to grow their profits in line with their narrative. There were lots of companies created in 2000, for example, with the first wave of internet companies where they promised incredible revolutions in every aspect of our lives. But the ones which actually managed to grow to profitability was much more restricted. And these are the ones which managed to have a business model which worked. For example, I still remember an interview with Jeff Bezos where the interviewer were just laughing at him and saying, look, you're still not profitable. You're just burning money. And he was laughing along, saying, yeah, 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 but we're going to get profitable soon. Interviews with him now would still be laughing at him, but it's because he's just kind of turned himself into this sort of buff Miami living playboy. (laughs) (laughs) He's just living the dream, isn't he? He's this nerd and he's turned himself into this sort of heartthrob figure in his own mind, at least. But he's delivered and he's come up with a business plan and pivoted in the right way. So initially it was just buying stuff. It was books. And then it became all these different products. Then it was taking their platform and making it available to other people. That was a really interesting idea, I think. I mean, just looking down that list of companies, I think it would be hard to go just a single day without using one or other of their products or services. Yeah, I couldn't live without Alphabet because, you know, I use Google for almost all of our products. All of our notes are written in Google's docs, spreadsheets feed our website. And so a lot of this stuff, you know, we couldn't live without it. 
So in a way, I think it's a positive. They've created this ecosystem where we can build businesses very easily and it can be a global business as well. They're the modern rentiers, is what some people say. In terms of rentier capitalism, they just sort of scoop a little bit off the top of every single business in the world. Well, that's a cynical way of seeing it. I think what they do is enable other people to scale fairly cheaply. I mean, I don't think they charge exorbitant amounts for the services that they provide. A lot of people don't like Apple's 30% commission on their app store. Apple's an interesting case because I think their, their products, they really can be substituted with other products. It's just that they have this kind of high-end label. But can they be substituted? I have a Mac and an iPhone and all of this stuff. And I don't know. I'm not a Windows person, Roman. <laughs> well, I'm a Linux person. So, you know, I used to be anyway. Now I've come over to the, to the dark side. But essentially, all of these are fairly interchangeable. And now that we have these web services, it's even more similar because you can have a Chromebook and the interface is the browser. And you've kind of touched on a point there, which is that a lot of people are saying one of the big risks to big tech is that it does become commoditized in a way. If you want to have some sort of cloud service for your business, you could go to Google, you could go to Microsoft, you could go to Amazon and their web services. At the moment, those businesses are all running on massive margins. But if they're just perfectly substitutable, you'd expect that margins would be compressed and it would just become like a utility. What I don't understand is why you can't have an Amazon Web Services in India. It's not like they don't have the tech expertise. They do. They have the infrastructure. But Amazon Web Services is really interesting. So as a percentage of Amazon's business, it's only 16% of their revenue. Yet it's 62% of their operating income because it's operating on this massive margin, whereas the rest of Amazon's retail business is on very, very slim margins. So Amazon would be in trouble if margins in the cloud got compressed. It does have a competitor in the form of Alphabet. They're fairly equivalent. I mean, just looking at the earnings season we've just had, and most of these big tech companies have reported now, in terms of cloud, Amazon and Microsoft actually seem to have impressed the market, whereas Google are disappointed. Their cloud services are not growing as quickly as the market had hoped. But just look at the growth in profits for some of these tech companies, and it is astonishing how successful they've been at growing it and how rapidly their profits have grown. I mean, that's ultimately why their stock price has done so well, is that they are great companies, right? All seven of these are great companies, no matter how cynical we are about them. What they did is took essentially a freemium model in the case of the service providers, the software service providers, and made us willing to pay for them, or at least pay someone to target us with adverts <laughs> in some of them. I mean, maybe we should give a sense of the scale here. So the mega cap eight, as Yardani defines it, which is the seven plus Netflix, their share of the S&P 500 index is 27.4%. So for just a handful of companies, that is massive. Over a quarter of the index is just these big tech stocks. However, they only account for 17.5% of the forward earnings that are predicted for the index, and only just over 10% of the forward revenues that are predicted. So you could argue that makes them look overvalued. So just to summarise that, they're very cash generative, but not hugely cash generative for the top line, but they have very high margins. But even accounting for their high margins, on a price to earnings ratio, they're valued significantly above the rest of the index. 
the S&P 500 as a whole, the average forward price to earnings ratio is 17.6 as we record this. Whereas for the mega cap eight, it's 26.5 times forward earnings. That's a significant premium you're paying for these companies. And if you compare the US with other countries since, I don't know, 2014, you can see that it's outstripped those other countries hugely. But if you strip out the mega cap eight, it's a very different story. So a lot of that success has come from the growth in earnings and profits for those companies. And it seems as if it's unstoppable. But of course, it always seems unstoppable until it stops. Yeah, it's the question of if it stopped, like if that premium for these companies was taken out of the stock price, what effect would that have? So I did some maths this morning. Oh, yeah. And I think it's right. If you took that mega cap eight and re-rated them down to the average PE ratio for the, all the other stocks in the index, then the S&P 500 would fall by around 11% if they sort of reverted to the average stock. Which may happen. I mean, it may be that that's a kind of gradual headwind for the S&P 500 as the valuations for those companies starts to normalise. The thing they have in their favour, as you said, is those chunky margins. So for the S&P 500, the average profit margin is around 12.5%, whereas for the mega cap eight, it's over 20%. And if you exclude Amazon, because that's a bit of a different business, it's a retailer, its margins are smaller, as we said. If you exclude Amazon from the mega cap eight, the profit margins are almost 30%, which is higher than I think any other industry, really. The other outlier is Tesla, where, of course, making stuff, making cars is always going to have lower margins. But for a car company, it's incredible. It's 11.5%, the forward profit margin. And NVIDIA is over 50% as a forward profit margin, which I think is not sustainable. At the moment, they're basically the only manufacturer at scale of these chips that are being used for AI. So they're kind of printing money. But you'd think that will revert to mean eventually. It has to. I mean, why can't a company like Intel produce chips which are comparable? Eventually they will. So it's just a question of whether NVIDIA can stay ahead of the game. But Intel's an interesting comparison, isn't it? They could have been one of these Magnificent Seven. If you rewind 10, 15 years and played out history again with better management decisions and all of that, maybe they would have been in here. So you have to kind of credit the management of these companies for having delivered. If you go back through history, similar things have happened with other tech companies like IBM or whoever it might be, when everyone thought, oh, they're going to be a giant forever. And now not so much. So of these Magnificent Seven, that same fate awaits at least some of them. They'll fade from prominence. And I think that's why it's always useful to have a kind of historical perspective on these kind of things, these trends. Because things which seem unassailable eventually aren't. So let's go back to 1967. So this is the year before I was born, Michael. You were born in the swinging 60s. Yeah, I wasn't swinging, unfortunately. I had a baby bouncer. (laughs) But the company that was top of the pops in 67 was IBM. That was the really cool tech company. And I remember my mum worked for IBM for a short period of time. Oh, really? Yeah, she was just saying how great the work culture was. They said, oh, you can actually take breaks. It makes you more productive. And she was amazed by that. And this is why they just failed, right? (laughs) (laughs) Chain them to their desks. And then we've got AT&T. That was number two in the market cap table in 67, which, of course, was split up by the government into seven different companies. Eastman Kodak. Well, we all know what happened there. The company ceased to exist because it was disrupted out of existence. As in smartphones and digital cameras meant people no longer needed to buy camera film. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think other disruptions are on the table now. And then, of course, we've got car companies, oil companies, and Polaroid. This was the hot tech of the time, though, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And then if you go back to 1917, pretty much the same story, but this time it was steel. So US Steel was number one. AT&T was still there, number two. Then lots of oil companies, Standard Oil, Bethlehem Steel, Armour and Company, Swift and Company. No idea what that is. That's what it'll be like in 100 years' time, though. People will be like, Apple, what the, what was that? Exactly. And, and yet we think that these companies will always be there because they're so successful and so much a part of our lives right now. So that's the kind of perspective from history that all good things come to an end, right? So naturally, as they get bigger, it gets harder to keep growing. But what's still in their favour? What do these stocks still have going for them that mean they could sustain the success? Well, some of them have been around a long time. For example, Microsoft has been in the top table for decades now. And it sometimes waxes and wanes. Sometimes it becomes more popular, sometimes less popular. Sometimes it tries to launch a phone and it just goes horribly wrong. Yeah. Sometimes Steve Ballmer just walks on stage and starts shouting developers at the top of his developers. voice for about five minutes. <laughs> if you haven't seen that video, definitely watch it. But I think in order to stay current, you have to adapt. And that's difficult for big companies. And if there is a competitor that comes along which undercuts them, or if there's just a societal change, they really can't change quickly enough. And I'm thinking here about Kodak and Polaroid as examples. You've gone negative again. I said, what means that they've got a chance of sustaining themselves? Well, they always sustain themselves for a while. It's just a question of whether that lasts and how long it lasts. And eventually, it won't last. You know, there will come a point where the companies don't exist anymore. All right, I can see I'm going to have to put the positive case here. So <laughs> the first thing I would say is that when you look at the definitions of different factors, so, you know, it could be value, could be momentum, growth, or whatever, a lot of these Magnificent Seven score really highly on the quality factor. They have strong balance sheets, a lot of cash, good growth. And if you look at the top holdings of a quality ETF, NVIDIA, Alphabet, Microsoft, Apple, they're all going to be right at the top of that. And I think it's you that said before that quality is actually a pretty good factor. Yeah, so they all have a high return on equity, fairly stable earnings growth, and not much balance sheet leverage, which ticks all of the boxes for quality. And some people are saying we might get a recession next year. Now, I know that's much debated and people go back and forth on that. But if we were to have troubling economic times, Maybe these companies with strong balance sheets would do quite well relative to the rest of the market. You might think so, but there's a concept which is operating leverage, which I've been dying to talk about on one of these podcasts. But this is the nub of the idea. It's a question of how much a company's profit is affected if its revenue falls. So let me give you two examples, two extremes. Microsoft is a company with high operating leverage, and Walmart, which is the Stackham High, Selham Cheap, US retail store, that has low operating leverage. Okay. So let's start with Microsoft. What does high operating leverage mean? Well, its cost structure is effectively set by its upfront development costs. So once it's developed a piece of software like Windows or Office or Teams, well, that's done. And then whether it sells one copy of that software or 10 million makes no difference. Its costs are going to be the same. Right, so it has a high fixed cost base and low marginal costs. 
And that means if its sales increase, it has a huge bottom line impact. Yeah, profit goes up massively. Exactly. And that's where the word leverage comes from. That's the concept here. And some people refer to that concept as these tech companies being very scalable, don't they? So scalability is great as long as demand is increasing. And compare that to Walmart. So for Walmart, their major costs are the products that they buy in, which they then sell on to their customers at a fairly low margin. So their cost of goods sold rises as their sales rise. Yeah. But that also means that what essentially happens is if the sales fall, their profit falls, but not catastrophically so. Yeah, so for Walmart, it basically means no matter how many tins of baked beans they sell, their profit margin is effectively capped. I mean, maybe they don't sell baked beans being an American retailer. I know they don't really like baked beans over there. Turns out their best-selling item is bananas. £1.5 billion of bananas a year. Pounds in weight, I guess that is. Bananas and high-caliber ammunition. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Let's move on before we get into trouble. Apparently it's toilet paper, because if you eat all those bananas, well, yeah. Maybe they are selling baked beans then. So I think we've covered operating leverage. But the cynical way of looking at operating leverage, especially when it comes to big tech, is that a way to increase that and please all the stock analysts is to kind of reduce your cost base, i.e. fire a lot of people and replace them with technology if you need to. And that, you know, makes you more efficient and improve profits and your operating leverage goes up. And we've seen that, haven't we, in tech companies over the last couple of years? Yeah, Twitter certainly cut its stuff quite a bit. Well, Twitter did. But more to the point here, I know that Meta, Facebook, they laid off, I think, something like 20% of their workforce. And that really did seem to be the point which turned their stock around. So they were having a real sell-off in their share price. And now it's been good. The market's quite pleased with them because their margins are improving and their costs are falling. And maybe they're not throwing so much money at the metaverse. They're still burning a lot of cash in their reality labs, but maybe not as much as they used to. So they can fire, but it's always a question of talent for these companies. If you lay off a lot of your staff and you're not careful, then you could have this situation where it's hard to hire back talent if you're competing with other companies for that talent. So there's always a risk that comes with that, particularly for knowledge industries like tech, where software development relies on clever people. And especially when they're scaling up all these companies to develop AI products, right? That's the hype narrative at the moment. Artificial intelligence is going to change the world, which maybe it will. But that involves a lot of upfront capital costs, doesn't it? And people. So these companies are spending huge amounts on these specific chips from NVIDIA, such as the H100. And the retail price of that is between about $25,000 and $40,000. And the margins per chip are around 60 to 90%. So very profitable for NVIDIA. NVIDIA, more than anyone, is benefiting from this AI bubble, you maybe call it. But I don't know, maybe it is a bubble, maybe it isn't. Who knows? So the approach of these big tech companies is we'll just spend a huge amount on this infrastructure and then create a business model that works. But they're kind of feeling their way with that. But there's a huge initial expenditure on it. I think they're just starting to really bring products to market with AI. So I know that Microsoft, for example, which I would say of these companies, at least on the software side, is the leader when it comes to AI. In their earnings call, they talked about their co-pilot system a lot, which has rolled out now and is supporting software developers through GitHub, but also in their Microsoft Office suite is very much sort of acting as an assistant as you create content and whatever it might be. 
And they've obviously got their partnership with OpenAI and ChatGPT. So I think they're out of the block strongly here, Microsoft, which is probably why they've done better than the other companies recently and are the second most valuable company in the world, I guess, behind Apple. Yeah, they actually got ahead of the game this time. They were famously slow at adopting the internet. They saw it as something of a joke initially, but of course, that was a huge mistake on their part. But when it comes to these coding tools, it's incredible if you've used Copilot. It's almost like it reads your mind. I did use it over the weekend, actually, to develop some code. And I had this really complex URL, which I just pasted into ChatGPT and said, explain the fields. And it did. Yeah, it's amazing. But then it generated the code for it in R, but it made mistakes. So I had to take that code and fix it. Everything I've said on this episode so far has been generated by AI. Um, That's why I've made so many mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) But it begs the question, do you think you could actually have an AI podcast that was purely AI generated? Because one of the things I I played to you, wasn't it, on Descript, which is a video editing piece of software, was the AI Romin, which sounded a little bit odd, but it did sound like my voice. Yeah, it kept going, revert to mean. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, we're there. We're 90% of the way there. Yeah. I mean, that would cover the bases. Are you in the market for more? Our sponsor for today's episode is IG. IG are known for their trading and share dealing platform, but they also have the IG smart portfolios for UK investors. These are expertly managed investments tailored to your needs. The IG smart portfolios are designed by BlackRock and fully managed by IG. Each portfolio caters for a different risk appetite, ranging from conservative to aggressive, and follows an investment strategy suited to your goals and profile. You'll be able to manage your investment account fully online, with transparency over asset allocation, performance and fees. Whether you're saving for retirement, a new house, or want to build up a savings pot, they'll offer you the most suitable strategy for your investment goals. You can open a regular smart portfolio, an ISA, or a SIP account, or all three. What's more, IG smart portfolios will give you 50% off management fees for the next 12 months when you open an account from the link in our episode description. That's a management fee of just 0.25%. Please be aware investing puts your capital at risk. Terms and conditions in the episode description. But with AI... We are very early in the story, right? Who knows how that's going to play out? My gut instinct is it will be world-changing and massive. But whether that will see the great returns for investors, who knows? Because everyone's going to have to throw so much money at it. And not everyone is going to win this race. And here I think there could be competitors from elsewhere, from beyond the US's shores. At the moment, it's very dominant with these companies like Microsoft and Facebook investing heavily in it. But then the question is, what would it take for a company somewhere else in India, in the Far East, to compete with that? And could they scale it fast enough and make it reliable enough and have enough trust to essentially compete with those US companies and undercut them? Yeah, I don't know how much of a moat there is. So I know that the initial research papers from OpenAI around ChatGPT were publicly available. And that's why... Elon Musk, for example, at Twitter, has been able to turn around and launch a large language model, a sarcastic one, he says, <laughs> like, within a space of, what, weeks, months? So the lead times are perhaps getting quicker and quicker, but maybe you can't innovate that way. It's just sort of catching up. But that's, you know, no moat if everyone can follow you in a matter of weeks. 
But there was a comment, wasn't there, from one of these companies which said, we have no moat. This was an internal memo that got leaked. That was Google, yeah. And it's absolutely true, I think. You know, the software itself, the design of these large language models is widely known. And it's simply a matter of throwing more resources at it. Well, you could do that anywhere, except for China, of course, which has now got this ban on some of these chips for that very reason. Yeah, the US is obviously trying to keep its lead when it comes to big tech. But I think this is a key point here. If there's no moat around AI and whatever else these companies are developing, because that's completely the opposite of the situation of the last 15, 20 years, where they've had incredibly strong moats and a lot of pricing power. So just some quick stats. For example, more than 50% of global online ad spend goes to just two companies, Meta and Alphabet. And Google, when it comes to search, has more than a 60% share in the US and more than 90% in Europe, India, Brazil, lots of other countries. You know, that's a monopoly. Microsoft, that's a top three vendor for more than 80% of businesses in the US. So basically, almost every business is just throwing money to Microsoft month after month. And Amazon accounts for more than 40% of online spending in the US. So whichever big tech company you look at, kind of has a monopoly to a greater or lesser extent. And that's why they've been so successful with these massive margins. But will that continue? To me, that's the heart of this question. And again, I think the historical perspective is interesting there. If you look back at the successful companies of the past, it was oil companies, steel companies, rubber companies, where a lot of that infrastructure depended on the automobile and the rise of the automobile, which completely dominated the 20th century. Now we're seeing the rise of EVs. And what's really interesting there is that China has pretty much dominated that, as has South Korea, whereas the US is way behind, as is Japan. So I think the tables have kind of turned in that sense, in terms of the next thing, when it comes to transport at least. So if anything's going to change this, I think it's going to be societal change and changes in trends, the way we consume, and also the way we live our lives. It's interesting to look at the things that could change this. So I think the biggest risk in the short term is just pure overvaluation. People are just paying too much for the profits that are penciled in for these companies. Would you agree with that? Definitely. I think it's just a euphoric bubble at the moment, which is pushing up these valuations. I mean, you just look at the numbers and you can see that's the case. These companies basically have to shoot the lights out every quarter to not suffer a drop in their share price. And we saw that after this latest quarter of results, most of these companies, Google, for example, did see, I think it was a 10% drop in a day. It's recovered a bit now, but the market is ready to mark them down if needs be. And if they don't deliver, that's what's going to happen. And it would be ugly, I think, if it does happen. Plus, all it takes is some kind of fallback in growth globally, and the operating leverage is going to hurt these companies. As in any fall in revenue immediately hits the bottom line significantly. Yeah. And unless they can scale the company down quickly enough by layoffs, then they're not going to be able to keep their profits high. Maybe that's the challenge over the next 12 to 24 months, is that we could see a slowdown in consumer spending now that consumers in the US have basically exhausted their stimulus checks and inflation does remain a challenge. And potentially also an advertising slowdown. I know that Meta and Alphabet both warned on their earnings calls that they're seeing signs of weakness in the advertising market, which is obviously where they derive most of their revenue and profits from. 
and tighter monetary policy takes a while to kick in. It affects the things which are rate sensitive first, so that's housing. But if you listen to what the Bank of England said last week, they expect it to spill over into services over the next couple of years. It just takes longer to do that. Congratulations for being the only one still listening to what the Bank of England says, Romin. (laughs) (laughs) I can't leave my mate Andrew Bailey hanging. And maybe another challenge that they're facing in the short term are currency effects. We know the dollar's been really strong. These companies report in US dollars but make a lot of sales overseas. That's not good. Netflix in particular was one affected by that. And Apple obviously has a lot of international sales too, as does Amazon. And a lot of these companies in their reporting do say, you know, if we strip out currency effects, this is what it would have been. And it always looks a little bit better, at least in the last year it does. Yeah, for Netflix, a lot better. But as an investor, do you have to sort of pay attention to that? Because the company can't control what's happening to the US dollar versus international currencies. I know it can hedge and things like that, but that's not what they're there to do, really. They're there to win subscribers in Netflix's case and make terrible TV shows. So you kind of have to judge them on the operating business, really, don't you? I don't think so. I think if they don't hedge properly, then that's a shortfall of the company in terms of how they manage their business. You can actually be very profitable hedging currency if you do it right and get it right. Yeah, but can you forecast currency? Well, you can take out some of the risk. You don't have to hedge completely, but some companies do it very successfully. And airlines, for example, some of them simply go to the wall if they don't hedge their oil cost and their fuel costs properly. Yeah, to me, that seems like a slightly different thing. Like when it's Netflix, I kind of think currencies are basically going to go up and down and revert to mean over the long term. They'll have quarters where it hurts them. They'll have quarters where it helps them. What I really care about is how many subscribers they're getting and at what price. Well, it's funny because I speak to quite a few different people on the Power Hours, and one of them was a cocoa trader who did cocoa futures. You speak to such interesting people. I love it. I said to him, do you know what the price of cocoa is going to be? Can you provide any insights? And he said, I haven't got a clue. It's funny, isn't it? Whenever you speak to someone in these kind of weird futures markets, whether it's currency or commodities, I kind of think that the way you can tell if someone knows what they're talking about is if they just throw their hands up and say, who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. And then, you know, there were other futures traders I spoke to. One did steel, another one did gas. And all of them said the same thing. They don't know which way it's going to go. But that doesn't mean you can't do something with the hedges. You can. Okay, so those are the short-term challenges. Maybe the economy will suffer a bit and consumers and advertisers will be cutting back. Maybe currency effects won't be great, or maybe they will be. Maybe the dollar will weaken. But over the longer term, we've kind of touched on it, but what are some of the big challenges? So I think first up has to be just sheer scale. These companies are now so big that their markets, at least in their core traditional businesses, are kind of saturated or close to it. So inevitably, that should lead to slower growth. And I think outside of NVIDIA and Tesla, all these other companies we've talked about are not really outperforming nominal GDP growth in terms of the growth of their revenues. And as societal change comes, can they pivot quickly enough when they have to adapt? And many of them don't. But do you think eventually you just get to a point where you're so big that how can you grow from here unless you go and you know, take over a whole new industry? Yeah, because how many new iPhone features can you have? You can stick more cameras on the back, you can make the screen higher resolution, but there's a certain point at which innovation becomes very difficult. But not even that, you just run out of people to sell iPhones to. Yeah, or people to sell advertisements to. So for example, Facebook, at one point, a large proportion of the planet was checking in every day on Facebook. 
But there are only so many people that can do that. And they pretty much saturated that market. It's just a question of whether they can generate more revenue per person. And Facebook's an interesting one because that kind of takes us on to the other long-term risk that's front of my mind, which is competition. Now, Facebook looked to have the kind of network effects which were pretty robust and impenetrable, right? Like you say, everyone was checking into Facebook every day or Instagram or wherever it might be. And you're like, well, how can anyone compete with this, right? Because a social network relies on everyone being on the social network for you to share stuff with. But then along came TikTok. Which wasn't even American. And that really upset some people. They tried to ban it. It's still got some bans in government, for example. And for tech in particular, these barriers to entry are much lower than they would be for something like a steel company or a rubber company or an energy company. And so if something does come along and it really takes people by storm, and these network effects, remember, can balloon literally overnight, and it just takes one celebrity to endorse that product, and suddenly things can change very quickly. And what used to be really hot is not, and then we have to move on to something else. Yeah, I get what you mean. There's obviously the kind of flash in the pan things, which get massive quickly and then disappear. I'm thinking Pokemon Go. Do you remember how massive that got for about six months? And everyone in London, you could just see them like catching these Pokemon in train stations or whatever. And now, does it even still exist? I don't know. But then I guess you've got the longer term trends as well, where something just sort of fades away. And here, I guess, digital cameras, right, were a thing which everyone had their own bespoke digital camera, which they took on holidays. And since smartphones, most people don't have a separate camera to their phone. And for software as a service, things like Yahoo Search essentially disappeared because it was just outcompeted by its larger products, maybe through anti-competitive practices. You looking to get sued, Roman? Yep. But also things like MySpace, right? <laughs> just that's the classic example. Everyone was on MySpace and then it seemed like overnight Facebook came along and put them out of business. So competition is a big thing, perhaps between these big companies or perhaps from new entrants to the market. And it's hard to predict. Or it could be governments that just say, look, we're sick of your product and it's anti-competitive, it's being used for bad things and we're going to get rid of it. For example, the European Union is really pushing back on some of these anti-competitive practices from some of these large tech companies. And that's a very big market. For example, Apple's App Store tax. They're not happy about that. Yeah. And the fact that the iPhone is locked down and they're going to be forced, I think, to open it up to third-party app stores, which would be a big change. Well, the USB socket on it, finally, they've got them to use a socket which is standardised, USB-C. Regulation is definitely a risk. Maybe the biggest risk in the medium term for big tech. And remember, that's how one of our historic large companies got split up. It was AT&T. I think what could weigh on the growth of these big tech companies from a regulation point of view is simply stopping them acquiring new entrants. Like that's how they've defended their position a lot. If you look at Meta, it was quite clever. It acquired Instagram for what in retrospect looks like a bargain fee. It acquired WhatsApp and it kind of built itself an ecosystem of social media. And now we've seen Microsoft recently finally get its Activision Blizzard takeover over the line after fighting the UK regulators actually and the US ones. And is now a big force in the gaming world. I think if the regulators were to stop those kind of acquisitions, that would be a challenge because then you just have to sort of build everything yourself from the ground up, which is hard. And if the competitors are from another country, then it's going to be much harder to buy those up, particularly if that country isn't a friend, an ally of your country. 
So if China does develop some of these new tech products and the software products, and it's got enough trust from consumers, then I think it could definitely outcompete some of these US software as a service companies. I think regulators will be harsher on big tech, especially when it comes to takeover. So I know that ultimately NVIDIA's proposed takeover of ARM, which is another chip manufacturer, was blocked. And it does seem that competition authorities just generally are more aware of the downsides of building up great monopolies and more willing to step in if they can, because they obviously have to win in court a lot of the time. And for me, obviously there's pros and cons, but I think that's probably a good thing. Like these companies should have to compete by being better rather than just being rich and buying out their competitors. But at a certain point, the success becomes so great that they're unstoppable. It seems to be that they're unstoppable. Yeah, I guess it always seems an unassailable lead at the time. I know that decades ago, the US was proposing to go in and break up General Motors, which was a kind of dominant car company. And I think specifically to split off the Chevrolet brand. But, you know, that didn't happen in the end. And I guess the lesson from history is it didn't need to. And that was foreign competition. Yeah, the Japanese manufacturers or whoever came in. And I think it's likely to be that in this case as well, because can these other countries produce something equivalent? Yeah, absolutely they can. And they can probably do it more cheaply because developers probably get paid less there than they do in the US. And it's hard to understate the risk that comes from China to some of these companies. So, for example, Apple does the lion's share of its manufacturing there, and it's a big sales market. Although I know that local Chinese phones are sort of closing the gap now on the iPhone. And Tesla as well. Their factories over there are extremely important. But that's another example where they're kind of being undercut by local companies. So, for example, the car which we bought is branded as MG, but of course it's made by a Chinese company, which is SAIC. And they've been hugely scaling up their sales in Europe. And if we look at sales from other Chinese companies like BYD, it sold 1.6 million units in 2022, whereas Tesla only sold 1.1 million. China could certainly come to win the EV race. And a lot of the really innovative ones are coming out of South Korea. So I think that's the kind of change that we're talking about, where there's a new industry with low barriers to entry and these companies just get outcompeted. All right, then. So we've talked about a lot of stuff about all these magnificent seven or maybe eight companies. And just to wrap it up, I've got a bit of a provocative question for you, Roman. So I saw some stats which said that since 1980, if you go decade by decade and look at the 10 largest companies at the beginning of the decade and then compare it to those 10 largest at the end of the decade, on average, only two survive, right, to still be in the top 10, 10 years later. So of these magnificent seven, you'd kind of expect that in 10 years' time, maybe a couple of them would still be up there at the top of the S&P 500. Which two are you going for? I'd say it's going to be Microsoft. That would be one of them, because they've just been around for a long time. They seem to be able to adapt, whereas a lot of the other companies may not be able to adapt if they get disrupted. Okay, and number two? And another one which I think is going to survive is Amazon, because they provide what people want. And they've got this platform, which they sell to third parties, which is a really winning combo, I think, and very robust when it comes to change. Interesting. I'm going to go for Apple, partly because, you know, I've drunk the Kool-Aid, but also because (laughs) I think that when we were talking about moats, a lot of our discussion focused on the sort of technological edge 
Whereas what Apple has, more than any of these other companies, is a consumer brand. And that moat, if you like, provided by that, I think is quite unique. And more than half their revenue comes from the iPhone. Will the smartphone still be the dominant consumer tech product in a decade's time? I think so. So I think Apple is going to be my first choice. And also it's the biggest, right? So it's got further to fall if we were to drop out of the top 10. (laughs) (laughs) And my second choice, I'm kind of between Microsoft, like you said, or Google. I think I'll go for Microsoft because of their lead on AI. So hopefully we'll still be around in 10 years' time, Michael. We might not be making this podcast, but hopefully I'll still be around. I hope I'll still be around in 10 years' time. I'll only be in my (laughs) mid-40s. Well, you will be. I was just thinking, you know, I'm closer to oblivion. No, I'll still be hosting the podcast just with AI Roman. Revert to mean. (laughs) Now, we've talked about adapting as conditions change, and investing is no different. As things change, you probably want to adjust how you invest based on what's going on. If you want to learn about investing and how to do that, then why not join our community? You can learn more by going to pensiongraph.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is how long do companies last? It's kind of relevant to what we were talking about, isn't it? That the giants don't stay giants forever. But how long do they last, typically? So how can companies cease to exist? Well, there are three ways. They can be bought out, they can merge, or they can go bankrupt. So I guess in the first two of those ways, getting bought out or merging with another company, shareholders are going to retain some value. Whereas in the last one, you're probably going to lose everything. It won't happen immediately. Usually the share price falls very sharply and then it goes to zero. But the fact is that companies cease to exist. A lot of them, actually, when you look at the stats. I was quite surprised by it. So if you look at the UK, for example, and look at all companies overall, there's a death rate, and that's about 12%. Or each year? Every year. Now, of course, that includes tiny companies with just a few employees. But it also includes the big companies. But it does include some big companies, yeah. Because I looked at the FTSE 100, and if you look at the 100 companies that were in the index in 1984, only 24 of them were still in the index in 2012. Now, that might not be death. It could just be that it drops out of the index because it becomes a small company. Well, what about the US then? Because there was a study by McKinsey which found that the average lifespan of companies listed in the S&P 500 was quite long back in the day. So in 1958, the average lifespan was 61 years. But by 2016, it was less than 18 years. So companies were going bankrupt or being merged much, much more frequently. Now, you could say that's a good thing because it means that there's creative disruption. New innovative companies come along and they kind of sweep out the old wood, which also explains why index investing is effective because essentially you're always buying a different set of companies every day. But there are variations, aren't there, by country, and Japan particularly stands out. And some people think this is just a cultural difference, that companies in Japan aren't always run just for profit. It's also a matter of culture that you keep the company going. They're often family-run, and some of them have been around for over a thousand years. For example, there's a hotel, the Nishiyama Onsen Kayunkan, which is a hotel that was founded in 705 AD. And it's actually supposed to be the oldest company in the world. But there are quite a few of these. Of course, I was looking at it before we recorded this. There's a construction company from Osaka, which is Congo Gumi, that's been around since 578 AD. 
So that would claim to be even older than this oldest hotel. And it's disputed. I mean, I remember reading an article on the BBC quite a while ago now, maybe 10 years ago, and I dug it out. It's called, Can a Company Live Forever? And it talks about these Japanese companies. And at least at the time, it said there were more than 20,000 companies in Japan that are more than 100 years old, which is kind of incredible. That's far, far more than in Europe or America. And that's got to be a cultural difference, hasn't it? Yeah, I think a lot of these companies are family run and owned and are very much tied to the community rather than, you know, trying to expand and become multinationals. And maybe it's easier to live forever (laughs) that way. Multinationals, I think, tend to die in large part because it's really hard to sustain a company of that size. It's almost like the laws of thermodynamics, right? And entropy that it just takes so much energy to keep the company together. And you spend so much time managing your internal disputes that you forget about the customers sometimes. That sounds like science fiction, Michael. You know we don't approve of that. Sounds like some of the companies I've worked for. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.